Where do we find security? What makes you feel secure? Like at what point do you feel safe from danger or threat? How many cases of water do you need to buy before a hurricane? How many loaves of bread and gallons of milk do you need to get before the next blizzard? How much does it take for you to feel ready uh, for disaster? Uh, We feel secure in the face of disaster when we've been prepared, right? Uh, We have security systems to uh, protect our homes. We have, uh, some of us even arm ourselves to protect ourselves in case the unthinkable happens. But in each one of these preparations, each one of these ways of securing ourselves has a limit, right? Bread and milk can run out if the storm goes on long enough. Security systems can be breached, sometimes even hacked. And our own weapons can be overpowered by bigger and badder means of destruction. What about spirituality? One of the greatest offers of spirituality is that we would feel secure. Secure in knowing. Secure in being connected to a higher power. Secure in having an ordered understanding of that power in our relationship with it. For some, it's what's called uh, manifesting. It's a very popular spiritual belief today. Putting your dreams out into this vast open universe. Doing good in the world and hoping that they come to you. Living like they've already been accomplished. You remain positive and aligned with your dreams. And the universe will give you all of the desires of your heart. Security in knowing that you'll get what you want. For others, it might be astrology or horoscopes. You pick up the paper, you search online, you read all about what's going to happen to you on a given day, in a given month or year, based on when you were born and the alignment of the planets. Security in knowing the future. For some of us in Christianity, it's the ordered structure of church life. Come on Sunday, maybe you serve, you sing the songs. Often the ritual of church can make us feel secure, can make us feel like we're accomplishing something. And of course, you live a generally good life. That's how you get by. And that's what you believe is rewarded. And a lot of time in church, that is what's rewarded. Uh, Being visibly good in the church. Security and being good. So what happens in those instances when trouble comes, when the unthinkable happens? Uh, What happens when the universe doesn't manifest your desires? When you never get that job you want, when a spouse dies, when you find that you're struggling instead of thriving. What happens when the horoscope is wrong? What happens when you slip up and your church life gets a little dingy? Your security is gone just like that. You see, none of these has any permanence to them. And none of them outlasts the trouble that we encounter in our lives. Because that's what we're searching for in security, right? We're searching for for peace, lasting security, lasting protection. Psalm 125 points us to peace given by a personal God. So as we work through these five verses together, we're gonna see that God's people are forever. Trouble is for now, and God's judgment is for good. Forever, for now, for good. Let's look at verse one together. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. So last week, Kevin preached from Psalm 124 on how God delivers from danger. God's people in that song are singing about how he's delivered them from their enemies. Our psalm overlaps with that uh, this week a little bit in the sense 
that there's danger involved, but ultimately there's more talk about the preservation of God's people through trouble rather than their escape from it. There's a testimony to the secure and lasting nature of those who trust God, be it through trouble or any other kind of disaster. I like to show the difference between the Psalms because it can feel like uh, when we're reading them, didn't I just read that? Didn't we just cover this last week? This sounds a lot like last week, but we have to look at the nuances of the Psalm. This is poetry. Uh, the words that the psalmist chooses are important. The overall message is important. What God wants us to hear is important. And in this psalm, there are other promises for God's people to sing, to believe, and to own. So this psalmist starts by declaring a trusted truth about the people of God, those who trust the Lord, Yahweh. So a quick side note, if you uh, look in your Bible and you see the capital L-O-R-D, we might have mentioned this before, but that's in place of the name of God as it was given to Moses. And we pronounce it as Yahweh. Because of the holiness of that name, when scripture was read out loud, the Hebrews would say Adonai instead, which just means Lord in Hebrew. And so now in our Bibles, uh, L-O-R-D is actually where Yahweh would be. So the psalmist declares, begins by declaring that those who trust in Yahweh, this personal God who made a covenant with Israel, those who trust in him are like Mount Zion. Now Mount Zion was the temple mount. It was the mount that they were traveling to as they were singing this song. It had steep slopes on three sides, which would have made it uh, an easier mountain to defend against enemies. This is where God uh, instructed his people to build his temple. He, he dwelt in that temple. The very presence of God was on that mountain. God lives there, and he's dedicated to this mountain as they sing this song. If there's ever a point of pride or identity for Israel, a point of security, it would be this mountain where God lived in his temple. And here the psalmist is saying that those who trust in the Lord are like this mountain. This mountain that houses the presence of God, this elevated ground that when you look at it, you just think security. What else does he say about this mountain? He says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. This mountain's uh, geophysical strength, its immovable and lasting nature is a picture of God's people. It's not going anywhere. And remember, this mountain uh, that these singers would have been singing to, they were, they were possibly even looking at it as they were singing, traveling to worship God and saying, hey, we're like this mountain because God is with us. He's promised to be with us. He's promised our preservation. He can't be moved, so we can't be moved. Kevin talked about this in last week's sermon, that the, the people of God have outlived and outlasted every empire on earth. The people of God are forever. So the song goes on in verse two. The people of God sing, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So before planes, mountains were a great barrier against enemy attack, right? I mean, they're still pretty good against a uh, ground attack. Jerusalem relied on these mountains for protection against their enemies. They didn't prevent attack perfectly, but they did give some defensive advantage. 
Here he's saying that the Lord surrounds his people the way these mountains surround Jerusalem. Again, think about what they would have been looking at as they were singing these songs. This is poignant art. Taking in the sights and sounds as you do when you walk somewhere. And here the word of God is using the landscape to express the promises of God. Mountains tower over us, but they protect us. And mountainous regions, uh, mountains are a fixture. They're there day after day. You don't just walk out your door one day and find that a mountain has gone missing, right? This is intimately known landscape. And in the same way, God intimately surrounds his people to protect and preserve them. The psalmist doesn't just say that we have the power of God on our side. He doesn't just say God is for us. He says God himself surrounds his people. And he says God does this now and forevermore. At this point and onward. Not just now, not just in the future, but always. I want you to see God's character here. He's personal. He's intimate. He's protective. And he's always working to believe in him today. God's people are forever because he keeps them secure. This is the truth about God that spans the Bible, Old and New Testament. If we look at John 10, 27, Jesus says these words, My sheep, God's people, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, 38 through 39. Uh, if, you're, if you've been here for a while, you've known that we uh, say these words from Romans as an assurance of our pardon often. We even sing a song that has the lyrics, height nor depth nor anything else can pull us apart. The verse says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So our God doesn't abandon us. Our God doesn't cease to exist when trouble comes. He doesn't base his love for us in how we perform. Our bond with him is forever, and no one can take that away from us. We're secure. And the psalmist says that we will outlast any wickedness that disrupts our security. Look at me at verse 3. The psalm goes, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. So the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. What does that mean? In short, uh, what the psalmist is saying is that evil isn't the final word. Wickedness is for now, not forever. So what's wickedness? It's kind of an old term, right? You don't hear many people calling each other wicked on the street. If you're from New England, you use it as an adjective. Uh, <laughs> but wickedness in the Bible is ultimately rebellion against God. And the first act of wickedness that we see in the Bible is in Genesis 3, when the serpent, when Satan, deceiving Eve, tempts her toward eating the fruit that God had forbidden, the fruit that God had promised would lead to death. God's command to give them security. The next one we see is when both Adam and Eve eat that fruit, ultimately attempting to be like God, not in his kindness and wisdom, 
but in his authority and dominion. See, they had dominion over the entire earth, but not over him. And that's the real sin behind the sin. The next act of wickedness we see in the Bible is their son, Cain, kills the other, Abel, out of anger. Anger ultimately directed toward God because God was favoring Abel's offerings. Anger because he couldn't control God. After that, who can keep count? It's all throughout the Bible, and it's all over our world. Wicked regimes oppressing people. Wicked parents abusing their children. Wicked children even abusing their parents and one another. We're in a cycle of wickedness. So now the psalmist says uh, that the scepter of wickedness won't rest on the land allotted to the righteous. When he says scepter of wickedness, he's not just talking about a couple of wicked people. He's talking about an order of wickedness. A scepter represents a ruler, a wicked reign. For those originally singing this, it would have been the conquering powers that would have ruled over them harshly. But the general reign of wickedness is even bigger than that. It's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2 when he tells believers this, when he tells us this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the people of God are a people redeemed out of wickedness. Make no mistake about that. We bear the mark of our first parents, and apart from Christ, we're subjects to that wicked realm, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls him. Isn't this wicked scepter at the root of everything that's wrong with the world? All the world's problems. Ultimately, a rebellion against God, against his commands to love him and to love your neighbor as yourself. Leanna and I went to go see the Mr. Rogers documentary last Sunday. Uh, it was really good. I recommend anybody to go see it. But if you want an example of how famished our world is for kindness, go and see that movie, that film. You will hear sniffles in the audience. Listen to those. People were bawling, not just because they loved Mr. Rogers and he's gone now, but because he treated people like they were made in the image of God. He treated people with dignity, and people are starved for that. He told them that they were valuable. He subverted the destructive discourse that we see on TV today. So when we see a film where he tells people, even adult people, that he disagrees with, that he loves them and that they're valuable, you can't help but cry. You cry uh, because you're touched, because it's a sweet moment, but really out of longing. I looked around that theater and I saw starving people. People who are starving for the security of real love. A love that our God has in abundance. A love that he's given to us to share with the world as we sing his song of redemption. Let's be subversive with the love of Christ. Psalmist says, the scepter of wicked won't remain. It's not forever, but we are. We will outlive our trouble. Stop and really think about that and let that soak in. You will outlive any trouble 
that you encounter. Jesus says, his sheep will never perish. The psalmist says, we can't be moved. Be encouraged by that today. Encourage other people with that today. Those who believe in Jesus receive eternal life. They've renounced the scepter of wickedness. They've flocked to the staff of the good shepherd. The psalmist says the people of God will remain, but wickedness will be removed. Why? Look at me at verse 3. He says, wickedness will be removed lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. So wickedness can be subversive too, right? It's not always in your face. It's not always in the form of an oppressive regime or abuse. Like I said just a couple of minutes ago, the very first act of rebellion we see is Satan in the garden. He asks Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He twists the word of God. In fact, God said they could eat of any tree in the garden except one. The attempt is to show the constricting uh, life of obeying God instead of the security that we have in him in such a subtle way. Wickedness preys on the righteous, not just through tangible means, but also through spiritual avenues. We have to be on guard against this ourselves. Even uh, our own minds can do this to us. Did God really say? Did God really say that no one could pluck you from his hand? Did God really say to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you? In those times, go back to his word and check. Reassure yourself that he did. Wickedness can't exist forever with the righteous if there's going to be peace. Whole and lasting peace. So peace can't exist apart from God's judgment. The garden was a place of peace, of shalom, this whole uh, beautiful peace where everything is in sync and just perfect. Adam and Eve's sin got them kicked out of that garden. And while God's plan was ultimately to redeem humanity through his son, Jesus, we've talked about uh, his plan to restore uh, the earth. We've talked about how that's realized in Revelation 21. I just uh, preached a little bit on that two weeks ago in the last sermon that I did. A uh, new heaven, a new earth, no tears, Jesus on the throne. There are two avenues for God to get sinners and our broken world from here to there. One is redemption and the other is removal. And the first is obviously preferred. That's the reason why we're on mission to make Jesus known. Why we pray that we would see people in our city come to know Jesus. Look at me at verse four of uh, Psalm 125. The psalmist says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. So now our, our psalm shifts to a prayer. Uh, before the singers are just declaring this truth about God's people, now they're asking God to do something. They're asking God to judge. Do good to those who are good. And we know that uh, just from this small psalm that the people of God are formed by their trust in him, not based off of their works. The goodness of the people of God comes from the goodness of God by the grace of God. We don't muster up any goodness in and of ourselves. We don't claim uh, any kind of goodness apart from God. In fact, Psalm 14.3, Psalm 53.3 both say, 
that there's no one who does good, not one. And Paul quotes that uh, in Romans 3.10. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So righteousness comes by faith. The psalmist is asking God to do good to the redeemed, to those who belong to him and to those who follow him, not just those who do the right things. He says, do good to those who are upright in their hearts. This is a deeper good. These are the ones who, like I've said, have broken ranks with the scepter of wickedness and align themselves with the Lord. This is what happens when we put our faith in Jesus. Does that mean that we're never wicked? No. We confess weekly at our gatherings that we do sinful things. We just did it today. We're beneficiaries of grace. And it's grace that sustains our relationship with God. It's God's hand that keeps us. So Ephesians 2.8 says that we've been saved by grace through faith. A free gift so that no one may boast free gift, nothing that we can earn. And the psalmist prays that God would do good to those who have received that gift. Uh, verse five, he says this, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So again, he's referencing this age old rebellion. There's no promise of forever for those who reject God. There's no security for those who reject God. We love the verse, uh, John th- verses John 3, 16 and 17, right? Another great scripture that we use in our liturgy uh, when we're having our assurance of pardon. Uh, it goes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But then verse 18 says this, 18 and 19, often not memorized, often not read. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. God's judgment is real and there is no security outside of Jesus Christ. Believe in him today. As I read through this psalm and the the verses uh, that compare God's people to his holy mountain, I thought, you know, I wonder if these people could have imagined that the temple on that mountain would be destroyed multiple times. Mount Zion was a significant place because of what was on it, but not in and of itself. The temple was what made it great. And the temple was last destroyed in 70 AD by Roman soldiers who leveled it with just a portion of the Western Wall remaining. The mountains surrounding Jerusalem at that time gave no protection. The immovable Mount Zion was now laid bare. A destruction that Jesus actually predicted in Matthew 24. And since then, the temple has actually never been rebuilt. What's beautiful about this psalm is that while the psalmists are admiring the mountains, while they're admiring the temple mount, they don't sing their song to those things. They sing it to God himself. 
and God himself, the Son, entered into human history centuries after this psalm was written to be destroyed just like the temple was destroyed. Handed over to Romans to be battered, to be broken down. He was hung on a cross. He was put to death, taking the wrath of God in our place for our sin, taking the wrath meant for the children of wrath. Why can we call ourselves good? Because he took the punishment for our wickedness. Jesus gave up his security to secure for himself a people. But unlike the temple, he didn't stay leveled to the ground. God raised him up from the dead. Jesus is the better temple. And with that resurrection came proof that every promise God has made about salvation, every promise God has made about security, every promise he's made is confirmed true by the empty grave. Those who believe in Jesus will be raised like him to life, eternal life, in imperishable, holy bodies, free from sin. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, the Bible says, to answer that prayer for peace. 1 John 3, 2 says that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We're secure in him. So God's people are forever. Wickedness, trouble, those things that disrupt our lives, they're just for now. And God's judgment is for good. 